Welcome back to another episode of the Artverse Commerce Podcast. This week we're sitting down with Mike Tringe of Creator Up. And much like uh, the week prior with Ty Weissman Jr., it's been interesting talking to people on more the commerce side than the art side, although, you know, both of them and Mike definitely as well has, you know, he, he has been on both sides. Starting out in teaching English in Morocco and realized that uh, a film program would be really cool to have with the kids kind of inspired him to realize that teaching people how to make film and kind of democratizing film there was real power in that and a real need for that on a national global scale and his whole career has kind of been based in trying to figure out ways to do that um, we you know we go through his chronology and, and go from business to business and what's fascinating is that with each business that he was a part of that was trying to figure out the wild west of the internet and YouTube platform and creators and how to facilitate them not just in terms of being able to make something but you know ideally getting actual eyeballs on it and having those eyeballs turn into money and profit um, it's an interesting journey and one that with each new venture that he was a part of seeing its pitfalls and then in the next venture trying to cover for the for the for the things that he learned from the last place um, which eventually got him to creator up which is his business which is um, doing that on a global scale trying to help creators trying to be it is in the education space as well in terms of teaching you how to do that kind of thing and it's just it's fascinating talking to someone who is definitely within the Hollywood world at least least in terms of his colleagues and the types of conversations he's having, but the work he's doing himself might be outside of that only because it's trying to solve for the things that Hollywood is not solving, which is um, the democratization of being able to make stuff and get it out there. And so it, it was a really interesting conversation and one that gets me excited about, you know, the future of the podcast at this point, it's really starting to talk to people that are outside of what exactly I do and they're outside of the people that I have come up with in the past 10 years making this stuff and really starting to talk to true strangers who are who are totally interesting, um, great to have a conversation with, and are operating in a different aspect of the industry. And it's it's great to have these kind of convos. And it, this one I got I got really excited about the fact that um that this is where this is where potentially certain conversations, certain episodes can go. And it's really opening up what we can talk about. And I hope that the, the core audience, if, if you are directors or cinematographers, that you, there's value in this conversation too, especially when trying to think about how am I going to, all the stuff we're making, how are we going to get it out there? And are we prioritizing enough that final aspect of making something, which is getting proper eyeballs and getting, getting the money back not so because we're, you know, you make art not necessarily just to make money, but making money helps you make more art. So keeping that in balance is obviously beneficial. And especially a lot of us are doing commercial work where money is certainly part of that equation, perhaps more so than something experimental or passion based. And so that's what's going on this week with Mike Tringe. Um, just some housekeeping. If you can like and comment on iTunes, that will help spread the uh, conversation and the show further. We're on all social media channels at AVC Pod. That's our handle. And for any inquiries, questions, or uh, guest ideas, you can email uh, this show's producer, Courtney Ryan, at Courtney at AVCPod.com. So yeah, this week, Mike Tringe, as always, thanks for being here. travel and get out of the U.S. to experience something completely different and film was a hobby for me. It was something that I really loved. I took a film class my, 
my last year of college and really fell in love with the process of making it and just showing it, just really everything about it. And so when I got there, it was just another thing that I did while I was there. I carried a camera around with my friends and I started, you know, doing a documentary about this friend of mine who was actually the first female DJ to come and, you know, launch her drum and bass style from Germany. And so it, it sort of was like a natural thing for me. And then I ended up launching a film class uh, at the high school where I was teaching. So it, it really became kind of a natural part of my experience there. The high school and, the high school that you were teaching at in Morocco? Yeah. Was there something about what was going on at the school that brought about thinking that a film class would be a thing that was the most interesting to do with them, extracurricular-wise? Yeah, well, a couple things. Um, I mean, the cameras were now, this is back in 2001, right? So 2002, um, the cameras were becoming more just accessible. And so that was one thing. Uh, another thing was that I taught a photography class. So it was kind of like a nice bridge for those students. And it was just exciting, right? Yeah. Yeah. How did they um, react? Like, how did it go at the beginning? Was it was it hard to, to get something off the ground successfully? I think the hardest part was just getting the equipment. They loved it. They were all over it. They were super excited. We had three iMacs that, you know, had four gigabytes of storage on them. And they were just super excited to record everything they could. I think they were very fearful of doing it because it was like you're in Morocco and everything that you're recording is like under, you know, consideration by who's watching and a lot of regulations, etc. Yeah. Did you find that, um, cause it sounds like a light bulb went off for you in terms of doing bigger things with this in mind in terms of, I mean, I guess film empowerment. Was there anything specific or any moment where you were like, you know what, this is, this could be bigger than what I'm doing in this classroom right now? Oh yeah. I mean, a lot of things. I mean, I, we wanted to have the students making films and, you know, doing all sorts of things. And I think the cool thing for me was that so many of them went on to create content, right. And be creators in that regard of how we would refer to creators now. So just the spirit of that. And then Morocco Film Festival was launching its first one in Marrakesh. Um, Warzazat was a film hub for a lot of Moroccan, like it was a place for Americans to come and shoot, but an international filming location. So it could have been like a really awesome thing for Morocco to up-level their film industry. Yeah. And you went to USC after Morocco, is that right? Yes. I applied to film school twice. Um, once was the second year that I was there and didn't get in anywhere and pretty much gave up. And then I applied again because why not? And I was waitlisted. Um, and I didn't get that letter until after I left the school. So I was actually enrolled in a business program in you know, Spain or something. And I wrote back to the school. I was like, do I have any mail? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, you get this letter from USC. Do you, do you want us to, <laughs> to open it? I was like, sure. And um, so I actually emailed the head of admissions. It was a really messy process, but I found out that I got in. And so I decided that I wanted to come back and really understand the industry. I, I was very excited about the connection between the business and the art. And yeah. Why do you, that seems to be apparent even just looking at your bio. I'm curious, even at a young age, it sounds that the business side as well as the art side, like the business side seemed to hold you just as much as the art side did. Do you know, is there any particular reason why you think that is? Yeah, I do. 
I mean, I think for me, um, listen, I think film is so cool because you're really making something from nothing. It's just ideas that you're turning into a uh, spinning into gold. And that's really all film is. It's the commerce of stories. So mm -hmm. for me, I was like, how does that work? And why? I couldn't understand how people were translating IP or ideas into to money so quickly and so much. And I was like, entertainment's just fascinating to me. So once I understood the business side of things, I mean, I worked at Creative Artists Agency for several years. And the time that I was there, I was on the film finance and uh, distribution department. So well, we before, were... Before we get there, because I definitely want to talk about that, but it's not like, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just curious because you made that switch or the move from Morocco back. When you went into the film school, were you, what was the goal that you were going back for? Because it sounds like you were doing this a bit later than... than than yeah. normal age. Well, listen, I'd been to a bunch of festivals. I was like, how do I become a filmmaker that can get stuff into festivals? So I wanted to get better as a filmmaker, first and foremost. Secondly, I was I really wanted to understand how to be relevant and scale that both for myself to sell content and also to, uh, yeah, just get more excited about it. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. People. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear you talk about it because it's, you know, not everybody is going to answer that question the same way. And like, I think someone that might consider themselves only like a pure director or a pure writer, their answer is really going to be revolving simply around the art. But you're talking about it also in a sense that's more holistic in terms of understanding like the full environment and landscape, like the media landscape, which yep. it's, it's fascinating that that's where your interest lies versus really only caring about story and really only caring about craft because in all honesty in terms of what you're talking about craft is only one component of like the bigger it's one peg in a wheel in terms of the wheel that gets things actually out there and successful as has yeah. it like has a holistic view of things always been your i guess operating mode i would say yeah i mean i'm a very practical person so for me if something is not seen or it's not experienced then it's like if you cut a tree what's the tree in the forest <laughs> metaphor yeah does anyone hear it uh, same thing with a film. If you make a film in the dark, I mean, does anyone see it? And it's like commerce is a method of distribution. And I, I think I was annoyed by the fact that like I would go to these really amazing documentary film festivals. Like one that's uh, in Amsterdam is quite well known. And it's like, why have I not heard of this? Why have I not seen any of these films? And Keep in mind, this is before Netflix. Right. Right? Yeah. This is before, I mean, Netflix was happening, but like digital wasn't a thing. And so yeah. I was annoyed by that. I was frustrated by that. I was angry by that. And mm. I wanted, and I really wanted to make these stories more accessible and both for myself as a storyteller, but also for other people telling these stories. And so I was like, how do I, how do I yeah. do that? How do I understand that world? That's really fascinating. And it sounds like the experience that you had at US C was very successful. I, you know, the, a student academy award feels like a big deal. Was it for you at the time? Did it lead to your first opportunities with like CAA? Like, what, did it? Was that a launching point, or am I inflating its importance? I mean, personally, it was awesome. Like to be able to be a part of that experience and the teamwork and all that stuff. From an industry perspective, I don't know that anyone cared. Uh, Interesting. It's like, yeah. I mean. Really, they I don't think they cared. I think what they cared <laughs> about was like, will this person do a good job at what I need them to do? Yeah. Type of thing. So. Yeah. Well, well, then when you got out, was it CAA that, that you first got a job? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was my first, I guess, 
the second paid job working in the industry, but first like full-time paid job. Yeah. What was the hope that you had going into it? Mm, well, my hope was very selfish and that I wanted to you were have a better- You were how old at the time? 20, uh, I was older, 27 or 28. Okay. Yeah. Older on the uh, assistant side of things. Right. Um, but I really wanted to understand how the system works, make new connections at the industry level and get inside the, the black box of Hollywood. And what I saw was a little bit shocking. Not because I was shocked by the system, but I was shocked by the, the state of the system. And what do you mean by that? What I, well, I could back up until the whole story, but you know, basically when you sell a film at a festival, there's a minimum guarantee by the studio, which is X dollars and some additional revenue share for the filmmakers, for the talent, for the, you know, whoever's involved, the producers. And the year that I was working there, would have been 2009 or so, 2008, everything changed. I mean, there was this big sort of vacuum and thought that studios weren't going to buy these films anymore. Uh, minimum guarantees were kind of going away. You would normally get a million bucks to distribute. So things were just rapidly like... Uh, downsizing. Yeah, downsizing. And so... And there wasn't really a business model in place to, to catch it in terms of digital distribution. So there was no Amazon, there was no Netflix, um, and crowdfunding wasn't really a thing yet. So what I realized was like, wow, this industry is in a state of crisis. And I don't want to be working in a state of crisis because th that's not cool. And so yeah. was there a how, part of you that was like, I, I, was, I think you're about to, was there a part of you that was kind of thinking, seeing it as an opportunity? In terms of like, for if, sure. if the model's broken, oh, like yeah. if I'm the one that fixes it, then I'm for not not fixes it for everyone, but fixes it for yourself. That you're you're in a, a stronger place. Because yeah, I was definitely trying to get my skills ahead of the curve with where things were going and where I needed to be in order to be at the front line. And so I, I made a shift, a conscious shift to move into uh, the digital arena. I didn't know where that was going to take me, but I about what again, year was that? Is, uh, it would have been like two ten. Gotcha. So really yeah. at the start of it industry-wide. Yeah. Yeah. And before like YouTube was a real credible thing or mm -hmm. social media was taken seriously as, as a distribution platform um, because frankly, you know, people just didn't understand the business model or the monetization. Act. And it's really, it's quite sophisticated. And I've had some really fascinating conversations with people who were in the industry at that time. Uh, you know, Content ID, which is now this IP tool, uh, you may be familiar with it, but basically ensures that if you've uploaded something that as the first creator of that content, you're the owner of it and that you can, you can monetize that across many different uses of the media. So if somebody else is it that the, the upload, it's the upload itself is the way that you like vindicate your, your own ownership of the IP because you were the one that right. uploaded it. Well, only because YouTube created this tool called yeah. content ID, which allows you to do that because it, but previously that was not a thing, you know, you could mm -hmm. not, you yeah. could not claim that you own something without the tool in place. Right. Well, yeah, so that speaking, was speaking on the macro side, that goes back to the bigger issue of why I think it took a while for digital to take off because everyone it was the wild west in terms of even simple things like who owned what and when you put something online it was so easy to steal and and all of that kind of thing when you were first getting yeah. into it in 2010 did you have um certain goals you were after or was it so you know a landscape that was goals, so unknown that it was hard to have uh, concrete goals i think in 2010 my goals were tell the stories that are untold that, what does that was mean? well it means that 
Listen, I mean, Hollywood has been basically an exclusive boys club for 100 years. Yeah. And it's like, how do we not do that? And how do we <laughs> let digital, how do we let digital be the solution? Um, and, it, and it is, and it was, because once I saw back into the analytics of these digital creators, I mean, the first thing that I noticed was that every single successful creator was filling a niche vacuum. Meaning that if it was uh, a gay creator or if it was, you know, a, a black creator or, you know, these are underserved audiences that are voraciously eating up this content because they've never they've never been served content at that level before. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been exciting. How are you viewing your the work that you would do? specifically to like help this realization well, that you I had mean, about your, where the your brain was. your brain goes to i'm going to help these people find funding or i'm going to help develop their stories or i'm going to help them get distribution i mean that's where that's where your brain goes to when you're working in a you know i, I didn't even talk about what i did next but working in a sort of digital studio or digital network setting is you want to provide resources that's like where your brain goes but what you soon realize is that resources come in many different forms and money and distribution are, are really the most elusive of them. But the one that was really the, the sort of the missing link that no one was doing was education. Mm. No one was providing support. No one was providing training around best practices or business models or where do I Yeah, education learn this of what stuff? specifically? Well, listen, I mean, education of how to do it. Okay, so for example, for the creators that are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, how? How are they doing that? What's their system? What's their plan? What's their strategy? What did they do right? What did they do wrong? You, if you share that information, you make it accessible, then you're you're doing good. You know, and you're. What, what I find interesting here, in terms of you know, you're talking about creating platforms for other people and helping other people and and sharing knowledge so that other people can learn. As someone who did start, it sounds like wanting like making your own stuff. This shift towards being a facilitator of other people's art was that ever mm. was that ever something that gave you pause, or did you ever like you know think I'm losing I'm losing my time making my own things. Did that ever bother you? Uh, yeah, of course. But um, I haven't stopped creating. I actually shot a short film last year called Driving the Heart based on uh, an award-winning American short story about two men who have to deliver a heart in four hours. One's a recovering alcoholic and the other is a total rookie. So I, I still am creating content. I still write. Um, I haven't given up that side of things, but that's great. I really found myself drawn towards empowering others and helping others as a job. And so when I was thinking about how can I be involved in this industry in a way that feels fulfilling, I think that's what drew me in this direction because I found the business side of things being in the business of the business as it was very unfulfilling. Mm. So I knew that I wanted to stay involved, but I didn't know how. And this was a great way for me to do that. That makes, yeah, that makes complete sense. I don't know if we went further down the line chronologically, but I did want to speak about your time at Vuguru. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And mm -hmm. Blip, like both of them, they were about finding content and how to make it successful, not just making it successful in terms of creating good art, but also making it successful monetarily and that like that's intrinsically linked is that a fair yeah. claim about that yeah well listen at two very different levels right i mean michael eisner was finding a way he he wanted to create a new path for the industry right 
Mm. And for studios who were flailing or ignoring or just not even paying attention to digital, he wanted to do the opposite. And he wanted to prove a point. And I think ultimately, I mean, if you look at the history of that company and the in- industry itself, a business model has emerged. I mean, Netflix is spending $6 billion on originals. I mean, that's that's yes. something every year. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. But at that time, his model was a micro studio that did low budget originals and mm-hmm. distributed them digitally first and then exploited them across all platforms, TV, film, globally, you name it. There are a lot of complications to that and I won't go into it, mm-hmm. um, but that was the model. And I actually believe in that model uh, on the, the, the low budget side. I think that there's a lot of overspending around you know studios and jo- different yeah. genres. So I think that part of it was, was innovative and worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it was a question of how mature is the actual industry in terms of varying that model. So it sounds like other. while you were while you were there, from your personal experience, because you were describing the business, but but your personal experience going through it, you were still seeing that it wasn't fulfilling exactly like your contentment wasn't being fulfilled I, totally. No, I, I loved it, except for that when you make something and it doesn't get seen. I mean, then the, then you're back in the same you know yeah. uh, boat that you started. And so yeah. my point was that I loved the production and the development and the slate because that was my department that I was in. Um, mm-hmm was the development department. Um, What I found disappointing was that I was not also involved at that point in the distribution and the business side of things. And therefore, you know, that is where I think the company had a hard time is is even though they even though they had a deal with Rogers Media, which was a minority owner in the company, and they they own everything in Canada in terms of distribution, Hmm. um, that really wasn't enough. I, think I could see to, that being frustrating, being on the creation side and then kind of seeing it fall short for reasons out of your control uh, in terms of getting right. through the goal line of being seen. Like something isn't right. finished when you when you get to final cut. It's finished when it gets seen. Right, right, exactly. And so, you know, we, we were in conversations with all the digital distributors, but it wasn't quite as mature in the market as, as it could have been at that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you were about to start talking about Blip as if that was... I was just going to say Blip, yeah, Blip took the exact opposite approach, right? Instead of trying to spearhead a new model for the industry, it tried to spearhead a new model for the filmmaker or the creator. And by doing so, I mean, really the innovative element of what they were doing was a super distributor. So, you know, in the way that YouTube... Was that like a personal response on your part, being frustrated at that specific thing and then finding a company that that did that specific (laughs) thing? You're, you're starting to see the pattern. Yeah. <laughs> it's like there's a massive it's, hole here. I'm going to go to the place that plugs it completely. Yeah. Well, I kept jumping ship to the most innovative thing that I could find until I couldn't find it anymore until which I had to create my own ship. Um, yeah. And so I... But I saw the leaders that were out there. And I think if you so let me back up and talk about Blip for a second. But Mm -hmm. the innovative thing that they were doing was really twofold. One, they were a super distributor across many different platforms. And they were solving that problem for creators to distribute all their content across different platforms. The second thing they were doing was creating a higher value proposition for the creators themselves. So the ad revenue was actually, on average, much, much higher for every thousand views that, that a creator would get through the Blip platform. Platform because their ad sales team was selling premium content uh, 
uh, you're looking at 10 times what it would have been through a YouTube, for example, at that time. Right. And so in How that way, was, was this? this would have been like 2012, I want to say five years okay. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Before Blip was acquired by Maker Studios. And so what I'm getting at there is that this was the entrepreneurs, the mediapreneurs platform, right? Where mm. you can make more money from the content that you create. And people loved it for that. They, that's why the people that like who were on Blip were just like super passionate about it. And then, you know, the MCNs or the multi-channel network ecosystem started to evolve and I don't want to get too technical, but, you know, George Strompolis, who is the guy behind full screen and the YouTube partner program, he was an innovator in this world. And by starting the YouTube partner program, he said he proved a point, which was the YouTube creators add tremendous value to this ecosystem and let's reward them by sharing in the monetization. Right. Right. And it used to be that like to get to be a partner, man, that you had yeah. to get invited. And like right. that was a thing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, where was it? Because I guess this wasn't fulfilling everything since you felt the need to go and create your own thing. Where was the what was missing here for you? I was seeing the the winners, right? And I was working with the winners. I was like, okay, you know, Freddie Wong, I Justine, Annoying Orange, Fred, Red versus Blue. Like these were the people who were really succeeding on the platform and who had done so for 10 years, right? And done so yeah. over time. Mm -hmm. And so I knew how much money they were making purely from their analytics. And I right. was like, mm, there's a gap here. There's no middle class. There's like people who are people who are winning and people who are losing. Why is that? It's because that the people who won never shared their secrets, started a school, like none of that stuff. And why do you care so much about why do you care so much about the middle class of filmmaking? Um, it's sustainability. That's it. I mean, it's like if you can't create a sustainable business model for storytelling or content creation where, you know, somebody doesn't have to quit their day job, then I feel like you're missing the opportunity. And that, by the way, has happened. Like yeah. it is real. It's for so sure it's real, not, but it wasn't I mean, real five years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if we want to get all lofty, there is altruism involved, but it's also that in the long term, if you're not sustaining a middle class, the the whole thing is going to collapse and then you haven't really built something sustainable is that kind of a thought process there just speaking business wise and like non-emotionally i think that i think the new model collapses the new model of democratizing voices and democratizing the money of content creation i mean if that sustainable factor isn't figured out then it's sort of like we failed at the revolution you know what i mean Ah. And so interesting so words because I mean the revolution is always any revolution is dependent on the middle class being a part of it. Mm. Yeah. In terms of numbers, right? That's the proletariat. Yeah, well, and, and buy-in and robustness and power and all those things. I mean, it's a, we just have to say what it is. I mean, it's a huge power struggle and power shift mm. to put the money directly in the hands of the creators. It's always been a middleman. It's an agency or it's a studio or in the old Hollywood system, which I came to understand, you know? And so I don't know that we've fully, I, I can say this for where we're at right now. It's not a fully evolved ecosystem and we're not a fully evolved solution, but mm. we're on that path. And yeah. I think that, yeah. That's always the thing, you know? Right. I don't know. I don't know if there's ever going to be reaching some sort of nirvana in that sense. Um, right. Has there ever... So you're at this point, you're at a crossroads where you're, you're reaching a point where it sounds like your mind is like, I need to do something on my own because the things I'm a part of, like I, I've learned enough that I now know what I need to do. Did mm -hmm. you ever have this, you know, there's Hollywood is nostalgia and working with those big companies, there's something romantic about all of that. Was there ever a pull to be a part of that club? 
and you oh for in- sure no all my friends were working there yeah and what <laughs> are did you that kidding do? this how, is like the you, loneliest <laughs> how'd you deal with that now, this, this is like the loneliest journey i could have picked for myself and it sucks in some ways because you're like not a part of that club and all your friends are still but i would start to hear like these recurring conversations of just like complaining and bitching and just like it sucks here and this nothing's happening and and at that point i mean then you were like oh yeah that's why i left did certain you know themes I mean? yeah did certain themes arise from like were they all kind of bitching about similar things that you could pinpoint yeah i mean it's just lack of movement speed slowness like all these other things and and granted you know there were innovators out there you know who were able to figure out how to navigate the system, but they were few and far between. Few and far between, and they they certainly were not working for the studios. If anything, they were working for foreign sales companies or right. with foreign sales companies who had another yeah. means to money. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get to this point, and you're going to make something. How did you determine what Creator Up was going to be in the beginning? Going from one job to the next, where there was a certain hole there, and then the next one tried to fill that, but then it was lacking in other places. What was the mindset of like I the these are all the things that this needs to be because I haven't found it anywhere else. What were the pillars of Creator Up at the beginning? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, the main pillar is the the democratization of knowledge and having that also empower storytellers. Those are the two pillars, I would say. It was pillars of democratization and empowerment. And I know how much I paid to go to film school. I know how, how, how much time it took. It was easily between 150 and 200K in four years of my life. And I knew that that was not a way forward for towards sustainability. So from a business perspective, I wanted to change education in that way. And on the storytelling side, I loved film school. Uh, I met so many cool people and I, I wanted to just keep that going and give everybody the opportunity to become a storyteller. Um, yeah. and, and so maybe it goes all the way back to being a teacher in high school and realizing that teaching a, a kid to write is a really, really cool thing. Cause you've been you know, a teacher the whole time. Yeah. I mean, right. It, it, it's yeah. just the, the medium has kept shifting, but that's yeah. been the under, that's been the engine it seems. Yeah, I think so. And um, realizing the epiphany for me was realizing that if people want to communicate today, whether that's through a film or video or VR 360 or whatever it is, they got to learn how to do that. There's a different grammar. It's a visual medium. And I say this all the time and I, I'll just keep saying it, but you know, Video is the 21st century pen. And mm. if you cannot write in video, if you can't speak video, you're silenced, you're censored. And I believe that. And that's yeah. that's what motivates me to teach everyone how to tell their story with this new medium, whether that's for the sustainability of, of art or whether that's to get their message across. I just think it's a critical skill that's just like, you know, writing. Yeah, no, it's the writing of today's age. When you started, how long until you felt like there was that you felt like it wasn't going to fold? Like how long until you finally felt comfortable? Let's talk about struggles. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, every year for the first couple of years, uh, I was pretty sure it wasn't going to work. And I didn't know why exactly, you know, because an online course library was something that everyone was doing, the lynda.coms, the Skillshares, even the, the sort of Udemy's and 
master even Vimeo classes. got into it yeah Vimeo got into it and I think one thing that we did which two things really that were pretty big pivots one was we brought it back to a live setting where we provided live training and had sort of a general assembly type approach to the skills and while that didn't necessarily scale in the same way that an on-demand course does, it did provide skills. It did provide access and progress. So from a format perspective, that was a surprise to me. I never was expecting to put classrooms everywhere. Not that I do that with classrooms, but certainly, you know, teaching with people in person wasn't something I was expecting. The second thing was working directly with companies to sponsor the trainings. I mean, those two things were pretty big changes and realizing that once we had created this community of alumni who've gone through our programs, guess what? They all can tell stories with video and many people want that. So that became another revenue stream for, for our company. So it's just evolved and changed over the last five years in ways I never would have predicted, but certainly have been by, um, you know, just yeah. need was, versus anything else. Was there a, a breakthrough moment that made you feel like a certain level of worry could go away? Yeah, I think it's when when we were able to provide this as a service, you know, provide our work, our training services to major clients. I mean, we've now become the preferred training partner in certain live settings and also for certain on-demand lessons for YouTube itself, you know? So, I mean, that's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. How do you view the like the YouTube environment now and the way that they are promoting their creators and how those people are becoming their own celebrity and I mean, you know, the the billboard ads with like it's just fascinating and I as a as a more, I guess, traditional filmmaker working in commercials and docs and narrative like I don't I look at it and I feel like I'm outside of it. Like I, I, I'm looking like I'm, I, I feel like a foreigner when the subway pulls up and there's a huge YouTube ad and it's some creator and it says that they have, you know, 10 million followers. And I'm like, man, I don't understand this. Yeah. Um, I mean, know? listen, it's uh, it's a new celebrity culture for sure. And there's just a lot more different types of people who are considered famous in their own regard uh, with yeah. a, a larger niche. And, and it's very personality driven. I mean, it's a totally it, YouTube created a new medium in that way. And do you worry about the um, visual aesthetic shift to one that might be? less no i don't i'm i'm honestly pretty you know agnostic when it comes to that stuff i i really believe that quality is relative to the to the audience i mean beauty is in mm. the eye of the beholder yeah. and it's like if something touches someone here's the difference i mean if you want to talk about aesthetics i'll, I'll talk about aesthetics with let's you. let's go yeah um casey neistad has an aesthetic he does right absolutely his aesthetic is you cannot look away mm. And I agree with that. And that's something that now ad agencies and brands are chasing after. Yeah. Right. So instead of thinking about it as a retrogressive <laughs> you know, devolution, I mean, we have to think about it in another way as well. Right. I mean, how does he do that? I mean, he's doing it with technology and his stuff is very action oriented and he's not the norm by any means. Right. But whatever it is that's capturing the attention of people is, is, is totally authentic and organic. Right. It's not something anyone's like making up. Yeah. Um, well, even like to use the term devolution, that would also mean that it's all part of the same 
it's all in like the same path and that together it's moving in that direction but really they're living side by side you know i don't how like classic hollywood movies are they're not going away because of youtube right Mm -hmm. and i mean even Mm -hmm. we're living in a tv renaissance that it's really making tv that looks as good as movies so it's like they're happening concurrently which is fascinating too and I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on like the fact that they both seem to be, I guess, in certain ways, strengthening. Yeah, changing, um, changing. for sure. And and I think it's gonna it's gonna keep going. I mean, with 360 and VR, I mean, we're all still figuring it out. What's happening that's different is it's happening faster, and we're evolving our consumption of these different mediums across different platforms. Like now, when I go to the New York Times, one of my favorite parts of the New York Times is their daily 360. I love it, right? I think it's so cool. But who would have thought reading the news would have been like that like a year ago? You know? Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, even it, it also is something where YouTube being a platform for this generation's celebrities, like there is no there is no golden key that's being handed to you by a, an executive board. It's just that, that that's, no, that's just gone. There's no golden key, but there are golden handcuffs. Um, actually, a, a screenplay that I wrote a treatment for was about the YouTube celebrity who could not escape their own celebrity. And this is these are the golden handcuffs, right? I mean, it's is that like different than Hollywood celebrity? Oh, for sure. How? 100%. Hollywood is awesome. You show up, you do your thing, you make your movie, you get your royalties, you, you live the Hollywood life, right? You're a celebrity and if you keep making good stuff, you'll still be in business. With YouTube, the benefit of, of YouTube is there's there's no movie jail, right? You can't mess up and ruin your career forever on one movie or two movies. Yeah. But the drawback is like it never goes away. Your audience is in your face and they own you. We're actually developing a lesson series right now, which is educational, but it's it's meant to provide support for creators around you know, cyber stalking and cyber bullying and like all the things that create that stress around being that person, right? I mean, these people are, these people are exhausted yeah. and they are so, they work so hard. And, and anybody who for a minute doesn't think that uh, a YouTube creator who's become successful, it, it just like was a thing that happened, doesn't get it. They don't. No, well, that's the same thing. It's like you're, you know, it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. It's, it, and that yeah. doesn't change in any platform, in any industry, I don't think. Right. Besides, besides scratching the lottery, I really don't think. Yeah, it's a new, it's like the new uh, comedy store. I mean, Grace Helbeg put up a vlog and people discovered her there. Somebody puts up their VFX and they're from Peru and they get hired by a studio. I mean, it's like, it's a discovery engine too. Yeah, and I think that that was the part that I thought was really cool in terms of looking at, I guess you have worldwide physical studios, is that correct? We do not. We partner with YouTube who has those spaces. So we are providing a service so that them. list of loca- of global locations is through this partnership. Yeah, exactly. Well, th- those are places where we've produced programming. Mm-hmm. But you're still, I mean, you're rooted into the into the networks of creators in all of these locations, and yeah, I would say mostly. I mean, on the other hand, through the student community and alumni community, yes. But the subject matter experts is kind of what our secret sauce is, right? Is that we're able to leverage this group of experts worldwide that can help creators take their business to the next level. So 
Do you notice anything like things that are different regionally with, with what oh, you're doing? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, some markets are way behind and some are changing 10 times faster than, than ours. I would say, for example, in India, we taught a workshop in Mumbai. And one of the things that I realized very quickly was like, to your point around aesthetics and, and you know, production value, maybe, I mean, like that stuff just goes out the window and it's like, what are you what are you talking about that's interesting oh it's this homeopathic food that i can make for my kids and it's really fast and easy and i just and that blows up because no one's talking about it right so it's a content king thing well it's a, it's a niche thing it's like mm. what has never been talked about before or covered and you're doing it and you're filling the you're filling the vacuum yeah for sure and especially even in, I mean, in a market as big as India, if only, even if one out of 10 people are interested, that's a lot of people in mm -hmm. that country. Um, that certainly moved numbers from you oh, yeah. in terms of YouTube videos. No, for sure. Uh, plays it's, or whatever, play counts. Yeah, I mean, the penetration there for creators is going to double or triple in the next couple of years. It's you ridiculous. Ever, yeah, when I was like thinking about this and thinking about ways like in terms of a synopsis, you ever think about the fact that this all started by going abroad and really creating um, an opportunity for people in a far-flung place from our American perspective to like know how to teach stories and that now it's you've worked your way back to it being a global thing again you ever think about that I mean it's the yeah it's the most fulfilling thing ever for me right I mean I yes I think about it all the time what are you what are you specifically thinking about when you spend time thinking about it well I think about power a lot and I think about you know are you guys familiar with voice of America I'm not Voice of America was this like post-World War II American propaganda radio station that lived in every single country and Voice of America broadcast. It could Is be... it like BBC World, but more propaganda? I shouldn't or... call it propaganda because they're good people. I don't think they're badly intentioned, but okay. it's similar to like the megalopoly that Hollywood has on movies globally, right? Think yeah. about it. Think about the cultural imperialization of Hollywood and Voice of America and like, and now think about all that going away. Yeah. That is cool because now people from these different countries can have the opportunity to tell their own stories from the bottom up. And I mean, that's just, I, I love it. Yeah. Cause I was going to say at this point, what are you, what are you hoping for? What's the next big goal and where's it all? Well, listen, I think, I think for us, like we've got a lot of work to do just locally in here. And I've always been super passionate about education in particular. So, I mean, I see video as a tool as well to create engaging knowledge sharing. So from my perspective, like what Khan did with Khan Academy was revolutionary and, and so awesome. And so many teachers could be the next Saul Khan, yeah. right? That's empowering. That's exciting. So for me personally, in the world of education, I love the way that media is transformative there. And I want to continue to push on in that world. And then certainly in the, in the, entertainment world as well. But I mean, the applications are endless. I mean, we could talk about real estate and we could talk about every different vertical that this is impacting. But my goal, I think, in, in the sort of what's next for me is how can we continue to provide access to next generation training for media for everyone effectively and to scale that. And so that's my goal. Yeah. And do you ever view things comparatively in terms of is there a, a, a relationship that like if this global Globally goes up in terms of, you know, grassroots creators having more say and if it, they are taking power away from the traditional Hollywood setup 
does it can one grow with the other one not diminishing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they can live in parallel. I think what you're going to see, though, is that the distribution of wealth will change. And for in a good thing, I mean, people are going to vote with their wallets. They're going to watch what they want. Um, there need to be new business models that support this system. And I don't know that the ad revenue share is the end version of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't, honestly, there's a lot of work on the business side for these two worlds to live together, but right now they are living in parallel and there's both sort of semi-functional, but there's so much work to be done around synergies and, you know, money, the money side of thing. There's still a lot of work to be done there. Cool. Very cool. Well, you know, I was really interested in talking with you because I wasn't sure where your exact interests were going to lie. And it's been a great conversation. I found it so interesting. Thanks for for coming and sitting down. No, listen, thanks for having me here. And uh, I'm really pleased to be a part of it. Cool. Thank you.